Recruitment agencies and advertisers use high-class spin in an attempt to sell their products. The advertising age in which we live means that we, we accept and maybe even expect such a take on things when people come to try and, uh, and tell us or, or sell us something. Perhaps we're shocked then by Luke's method in the book of Acts because he adopts a totally different approach. We see in Acts how disciples receive not only empowerment and, and the gifts to be able to do great signs and wonders, but they also receive opposition and endure much suffering. In this account of the early church and what it means to follow Jesus Christ, Luke is not afraid to demonstrate the cost of following Jesus. Personal cost, both physically and emotionally. We see something of both these things in Acts chapter 21 that we're looking at this evening. Acts chapter 21 verses 1 to 16 might appear to be nothing more than a long list that has slipped in and maybe by accident out of Luke's travel diary. But actually when it's taken in conjunction with the rest of the passage, we see that, that it fits in really well and it's much more than an interesting historical record because some important principles about Christian service are demonstrated in there. I want us this evening to think just about one thing. What lessons we can learn from Acts chapter 21 about Christian service. Christian service, whether in the wider community or wherever God calls us to be. Acts chapter 21 opens denoting in verse 1 the emotional difficulty of the departure of Paul and the others from the Ephesian elders. That is an overarching principle in Christian service, that it can involve emotional difficulty because there are emotional ties having led people and pointed them to Jesus and led them on in their walk with him. Perhaps we see even something of that, even maybe on a summer team or in a camp. It's only ever meant to be a week or a fortnight in a year, and yet at the end of that time, it, it can be emotional to leave, to leave the people you've been working with. An emotional cost in Christian service. But then we come to Luke's travel log. It tells of a number of one-day stops from Kos to Rhodes to Patara, past Cyprus to Syria, and then they landed at Tyre where the ship, uh, the cargo was unloaded. There's one thing that strikes me from the travel diary. It's that wherever Paul went, he looked for disciples. Verse 4 tells us he found disciples, which, which implies that he went looking for them. The disciples he found here were probably a Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who had been scattered after Stephen's martyrdom. So they knew all about opposition. They knew all about a cost to following Jesus. But Paul sought them out in this uh, city and made himself known to them. And in that he demonstrates an important principle that, that, that we can never get past or never forget. <coughs> that Christian service cannot be at the expense of Christian fellowship. Christian service cannot be at the expense of Christian fellowship. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul adopted this approach. For we've already seen how in his missionary journeys he, he made gospel partners wherever he went. Gospel partners like Aquila and Priscilla. Or like Silas and Barnabas on his missionary journeys. We see that as Paul travels around this region, there are churches dotted everywhere. And yet he forms links with them maybe even if he doesn't already know them. He demonstrates for us that the church 
has become a countercultural global network of, of little communities. They're not insular. They're not dependent, but they, they, are, they, they have mutual support. And that is a mark of the church that we cannot neglect in an increasing individualistic and independent age. And I'm glad to say that here in Kirkpatrick we don't, and uh, I have a visual aid over here uh, this evening with our focus on mission partners across this island and around the world. The church cannot be insular and inward-looking. It has to look out and have that relationship with others in other places. Then notice in verse 5, the entire congregation were involved in this important work of encouragement. What a picture of the whole church family, men, women, and children, all accompanying Paul and his companions to the beach. And there they knelt to pray. What a wonderful picture of the church family spurring one another on, enjoying time and fellowship together. The key lesson for us, that being active in Christian service, whether, whether it's BBGB, Sunday School, CE, whatever organization we think of, we can't be so busy and involved in those that that, that, that eats in, into our time and our availability to come and worship with God's people. And that's why it's great to see how the, the church community and change process is incorporated right into the midst of the fellowship here. That it's not an add-on or in the periphery, but it's right at the centre of the congregational life for mutual support, mutual encouragement. And it's important not to lose sight of that because that's exactly the principle that Paul demonstrates here as he makes this painful and difficult journey towards Jerusalem. You see, we also see in this passage the reason why fellowship is needed. It's because you need support. You see, Luke is keen to stress in this and in the coming chapters uh, as, as the book of Acts closes, that the cost of discipleship is great. Just in case there's any misconception, following Jesus costs. Following Jesus is difficult. Luke shows us it's not going to be easy, but he offers us a solution. But together we rely on God, mutually supporting one another. Yes, those who are following Jesus know that the decisive victory against the forces of evil and death have been won for time and for eternity. But there are still battles on this earth to be fought, for this world is an inhospitable place for God's people, and we can't be complacent. Paul's action here shows us being involved in Christian service is not at the expense of, of times of Christian fellowship, opportunities to meet together, opportunities to learn, to be prayed for and to be prayed with, to be encouraged and to be refreshed. But secondly, in this passage, we see that Christian service must be surrendered to God's will. I'm struck by the amount of guidance given by these communities of believers, if not a little confused by it all. Bear with me as we uh, compare a few verses in this chapter. Verse 4, through the Spirit, the, the believers urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then in verses 11 and 12, Agabus does this, this role player, this wee bit of drama, where he demonstrates how the authorities in Jerusalem would bind Paul coupled with the pleading of the people of Caesarea that, that he should stop in his journey to Jerusalem. That's one side of the coin. 
But that seems to contrast with, with, with Paul's own sense of guidance in Acts chapter 20 that, that, that we read last time. He says, I'm now compelled by the Spirit. I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Is there a contradiction here? Are we to blame Paul for, for his obstinacy and not heeding the, the, the advice of his fellow believers? Or are we to admire him for his unshakable resolve? John Stott helps us by, by making a distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. Now, Agabus only predicts that Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And the pleading which followed are not claimed to be from the Spirit. But also when we look at, at how Luke has presented the guidance of the Spirit for this whole missionary endeavor throughout the book, we see that, that it's not a contradiction, that it fits perfectly. Because we've already seen how the Holy Spirit has positively guided the mission by the Holy Spirit sending them out from the church in Antioch way back in chapter 13. We have also seen negative and corrective guidance of the Spirit with the intervention in Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia in, in chapter 16. And more recently, we've seen this, this guidance of the Spirit that is an inner compulsion for Paul to minister in Jerusalem and Rome in chapters 19 and 20. And the inner peace that he is able to say, if I go there and if I die for Christ, well, I'm ready. But all these aspects of guidance are matched with warnings. Paul's not walking into this blind. God warns him of the suffering that lies ahead. So what Luke has in fact recorded for us is the Spirit's inner prompting of Paul and his outer warning that this isn't going to be easy. These served as opportunities for Paul to reaffirm his readiness to step out in Jesus' name so that even though he couldn't see the ending, it was right here that he must start. You know, when we think of the whole issue of guidance, it's a, it's a massive issue. It's one for another occasion. But suffice to say in this passage, it shows us Christian communities in deliberation. Christian communities in deliberation when the stakes are high, when they are literally a matter of life and death. Any aspect of Christian service, indeed any aspect of our lives, we need to seek God's guidance. We need to pray. Sometimes that guidance may may be abundantly clear if the issue is addressed in scripture and it's there in black and white what we should do and how we should respond at other times making decisions can be much more difficult and so perhaps as we read and study God's word and and discuss with Christian friends we can get a sense of, of what God is calling us to do we see here also in this chapter that sense of harmony uh, within a community. It's difficult because Paul has this inner compulsion to go and everybody seems to be telling him to stop. But what is clear is that, that we nor Paul can't just make up our own minds what we're going to do, implement our own ideas and then try to fit God in some way down the line. No, we must be open and ready to God's guidance and fully surrender to him. Luke responds in verse 14 by saying that despite all their pleadings, Despite everything they've been saying, Paul still wants to go. And so they say, the Lord's will be done. That too must be our overall aim and indeed our baseline. 
Discipleship seeks to bring believers on and to grow in maturity in Christ to become more like Jesus. And here, in perhaps the most difficult of circumstances, Paul demonstrates these qualities. So Paul's travel diary. Christian service can't be at the expense of Christian fellowship. Christian service must be surrendered to God's guidance and to God's will. Thirdly, Christian service will involve making difficult decisions. You see, there's no surprises with Luke. He holds nothing back. There's going to be difficult decisions in the road that lies ahead. Paul arrived in Jerusalem and was warmly received and welcomed. And then the next day in verse 18, they went to see James. Here again, the tension is high. Here, everything that has the potential to be an explosive meeting is there on the table. For we have James and Paul in a room, the representatives of two branches of Christianity, those from Jewish backgrounds and those from Gentile backgrounds. We already know there's been tension. And here are the two leaders, as it were, coming head to head. This is at least their fourth meeting, but it still feels tense because all the issues are far from sorted out. But notice also, just in passing, that all the elders are present at this meeting. This idea of the plurality of leadership is again demonstrated by Luke in Acts as it was in the Council of Jerusalem back in chapter 15 and in other places. Mirrored, uh, at least in part, by the form of Presbyterian church government. And that's a helpful reminder because sometimes we wonder why we do things the way we do and maybe we get frustrated with bureaucracy within uh, the wider church or whatever. I know I sometimes do. But, But this reminds us of the plurality of that leadership. Just in passing, I wanted to note that. Then in verse 19, Paul reports what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And that's a great reason for celebration. In many ways, we're really familiar with what Paul would have said there because Luke has spent 10 whole chapters telling us God has blessed this ministry. And Luke is clear that that, that it is God who has done it through Paul. It's not Paul. It's God who has brought this growth and this blessing. And in verse 20, the the Jerusalem Christians speak. They address Paul as brother. A tense situation. They have a bone to pick with Paul. But they address him as brother. Think for a moment how difficult decisions amongst believers could be dealt with. If we did so in constant remembrance of our identity as brother and sister in Christ. Think how that changes perspective in a debate or a discussion. Perhaps a helpful question which we sometimes need to ask if such debates arise in church life is, is what unites us as brother and sister in Christ stronger than what divides us? They have a bone to pick with Paul, but they remind themselves as they address him, he's our brother in Christ. Furthermore, then we get a glimpse of what God has been doing amongst Jewish communities. The Christians from Jewish backgrounds have also been growing. In fact, many thousands have been coming to Christ. Such is the extent of the spread of the good news of Jesus. But then the bone that they have to pick with Paul. What about the relationship of these converts from Judaism to the law? 
verse 21. They've been informed, they say to Paul, they've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. It's important before we look at that verse that we, we clarify what exactly it is saying. Because their concern is not what Paul has been teaching about the way of salvation. It's about a discipleship issue. Secondly, their concern isn't what Paul has been teaching the Gentiles, but what he's been teaching Jewish converts. And thirdly, their, their concern is not about the moral law, but rather about Jewish customs. These Jews who had trusted in Christ couldn't just turn their back on this ceremonial law that they had followed and learned from the Old Testament. But what exactly was their relationship with it meant to be? Remember how back in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, the issue of of Gentile inclusion, those from Gentile backgrounds, how they were to be integrated into the wider Christian community, how that was discussed and, and, and sorted out. Well, if you like, the coin is flipped over to the other side, and this is the other side of the coin. Equally well, how, how are people from Jewish backgrounds going to be incorporated into this community? Just as the council concluded that they didn't want to make it difficult for Gentiles who were becoming Christians, so too the leadership can't make it difficult for those of Jewish background. The reality that entry into the kingdom of God is by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is not under debate in these verses. That is agreed. But the practicalities of how different people from different cultural backgrounds integrate together still need some sorting out. Some of the material in these verses seems very repetitive to the discussion at the Council of Jerusalem. In a way, that's maybe helpful for us because it reminds us that difficult decisions and difficult issues in Christian service and in church life are often multidimensional and they're never properly sorted in one meeting or in one discussion. The foundational issue is that people from different backgrounds were coming into the church. It's all about being sensitive to cultural, ceremonial and traditional values. I wonder how sensitive are we to people from different backgrounds who come and how open are we to their inclusion within a community of God's people. And just to say by experience and certainly by reputation, this is a a very welcoming uh, congregation and that is known widely uh, by reputation. But perhaps here we just have a reminder to continue to work hard on that and to continue to maintain that. Many of the commentators have agreed that the construction of verse 21 is such that they were informed is indicative that a rumour was being circulated about Paul, that he has not been teaching or has been teaching certain things that are frowned upon. The tension you see in Jerusalem is compounded by a rumour. It is reported here anonymously, and no doubt we can guess, probably with some uh, correctness, that it would have been stirred up by those who were opponents to the gospel and wanted to cause friction within the Christian community. They'd heard a rumour. They'd heard a rumour that Paul was telling parents that they no longer needed to apply the mark of the covenant to their children. For Jewish ears, this would have been incomprehensible. The leadership want to deal with the issue. They don't want to let it fester. 
Here in one sentence we see a problem that has plagued the church down through the ages. What people might have said. Here we see the potential destructiveness for the church. And surely we apply it by resolving not to share in or trade in gossip and rumours. There is a danger and a destructiveness in church life and it's endemic. Especially when new things are tried in gospel ministry. Did you hear how they tried to share the gospel? Did you hear what they did? We would never do it like that. Maybe such rumours and the temptation is to hide behind them as a smokescreen. So if we take a high moral ground to save us taking risks and that we remain comfortable in what we've known. Let's resolve not to waste our time in such ways like that. Such discussion is unhelpful, it's dangerous and it's pointless. So in this we're reminded of the danger of such action. But we're also reminded not to let our problems fester. Difficult decisions, we say, have to be made in Christian service. And difficult issues have to be dealt with. You know, even at a different level, I thought it was excellent how in church community and change there was opportunity for people to, to write down their questions and then how they were addressed. That, that is a, a brilliant way of, of, of how we learn together and how we support each other in, in things that uh, maybe are, are troubling us. And so then, on this greater level of, of difficult decisions and difficult issues in Jerusalem, we see how they too tried to sort out this, this, the difficult issue before the problem got worse. Making difficult decisions always requires wise counsel. And so James has a suggestion for how to deal with this potentially destructive situation. There's no point trying to ignore it. There's no point trying to bury your head in the stand. Because Paul, they know you've come to Jerusalem. And they're going to be around here looking for you to hear what you've really said. So here's what to do. Verse 23 where Paul, or James says, do what we tell you is him giving good advice. He tells of four men who have made a vow, it's a Nazarite vow, where they wouldn't have their heads shaved as a, a symbol of a period of time, usually about 30 days, where they would have a, a particular commitment to the things of God. And, and the not cutting the hair represented unimpaired strength devoted to the Lord. You remember uh, the story of Samson in the Old Testament. Uh, and you, you see the parallel there with this uh, vow. So James says to Paul, join them. And actually pay their expenses, just to show that, that this is a practical demonstration to quash the rumour. This isn't James bullying Paul or trying to get him to retract on ground that had been made at the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. No, we know that because Paul in, in chapter 18 made a similar vow en route, in, en route to Ephesus. On the one hand, Paul here is dealing with a very specific issue with the lingering claim of the obsolete Old Testament rituals that still held sway in this transitional period as many thousands of Jews came to Christ. And so things are different today, but I think the principle that Paul demonstrates here applies to us. We've already considered how it shows the reality that, that in Christian service there will be times of difficult decision-making. But consider here how Paul is serious about maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Another example showing us that Christian service is not about individualism. It's not all about me, but rather about unity. That's important. 
Are we open to, to listen in church life, even to take risks, even to change how we might have done things for the sake of unity? Because that's what Paul is doing here. What's happening? Some people argue that Paul actually compromises himself here. Some people think he has backtracked on the Jerusalem Declaration. I disagree. Because in verse 25, we have word for word what was agreed in Jerusalem at that earlier council. This is about Jews. This is about Christians from Jewish backgrounds. And rather than compromising himself in Acts chapter 21, I actually think what we have in this, this horrendous situation is a practical demonstration of 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, where Paul says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Yes, the Gentile side of the coin is sorted out. And here he takes risks to sort out the Jewish side of the coin. Here is a practical demonstration of what it means to say that yes, Christians have freedom, but they also have the freedom to restrict their freedom, to give thought to their weaker brother or sister rather than be a stumbling block to them. Yes, Paul didn't have to take this vow. It wasn't essential, but it certainly was helpful in bringing these infant Jewish converts on in the faith. It's difficult to extrapolate this exactly, but Where does that leave us in terms of reaching out into the community? In terms of our comfort zone when difficult decisions have to be made? How we are called to act with cultural sensitivity? How we are called to act carefully? Not tying the gospel to any particular politic or any particular social class. How it means that in gospel ministry there is no room for a holier-than-thou attitude. How it means that when it comes to decision making, there is one thing that counts. And that is keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the good news of the gospel of grace the main thing. And not letting other things, whether it's Jewish ceremonial vows or or whatever, not letting other things detract or cloud that, that issue and that great truth. Paul here calls us not merely to be concerned with dotting I's and crossing T's about how to be right, but rather he calls us to give ourselves sacrificially, humbly, and graciously, that God might use us to point other people to Christ. It's been said that liberty is a great thing, but sometimes the expression of liberty can be counterproductive. And certainly, it would have been counterproductive if Paul had dug his heels in in Jerusalem that day. We need to think about who we're seeking to reach. The gospel is a message of grace, not tied to the law. And Paul demonstrates here his flexibility. By his flexibility here, Paul demonstrates that with freedom comes responsibility. We need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray even for sanctified common sense. So in this passage, the challenge here from Paul as we see that difficult decisions do have to be made in Christian service, is to use our freedom to advance the gospel, to promote the unity of an ethnically diverse church. Paul is confronted with having to make a difficult decision. In many ways, it's a a no-win situation. 
I want you to notice in, in, in closing where this situation has arisen. Paul's first trial in Jerusalem was not before the pagans. It wasn't before the Jews. It wasn't before the Roman rulers. It was in the church. Difficult decisions and instances of difficult decision-making can arise internally as well as externally. Paul doesn't run away from them or dismiss their importance, but rather he deals with them. In Acts 21, we have a clear picture of Christian service working out in the conjunction with Christian fellowship and consideration being made for other members of the body. So three key lessons for Christian service. That it's not and cannot be at the expense of Christian fellowship. That it must be surrendered to God's will and to his guidance. And that it will involve making difficult decisions. Three lessons that we can seek to implement in our own lives and in the life of the congregation as we seek under God to go forward in the year that lies ahead. Let's pray.